When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about The Other Americans. That's the new novel by Leila Lalami. Her last novel, The Moore's Account, won the American Book Award and was a Pulitzer finalist. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Harper's and The Guardian, and of course she's a columnist for The Nation. Leila Lalami, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, America is a country of immigrants, we all say, and the standard immigrant story is the American dream. Immigrant crosses the ocean, works really hard, becomes a success. The story in your new novel is a little more complicated. (laughs) As life tends to be. (laughs) So the book begins with the death of a Moroccan immigrant on a desert road in a hit-and-run accident, and we don't know there's a mystery about who's driving or whether it's an accident or, or something else. And the guy who is killed is a Moroccan immigrant. His name is Dries Gerawi, and he came to the United States in 1981 with his wife following some political trouble he got into in Morocco. And he moves to the desert in the Mojave, starts a business. And the whole idea for him was that he would come to this country with his wife and find safety and opportunity. And the first paragraph of the book is basically this accident where he dies. So the thing that he was searching for, he doesn't find. And then, so the book is told from the perspectives of multiple characters, including his daughter, who's a musician, who returns home at the beginning of the book because of this death, his wife, who's now his widow, his other daughter, the person who runs the business next door, you know, the detective who's investigating the story. But basically, all of these characters have some kind of a connection to him. And the book is told from their perspectives. And the setting is not a big city immigrant neighborhood like East L.A. or the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Instead, you set it in a small town in the Mojave Desert. Already, we are surprised. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, that sort of is the expectation. I mean, I was born and raised in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. And then I lived in London. And after that, I lived in Los Angeles. So I've always thought of myself as a big city person. It's a space that I feel comfortable in, the density, the noise, and all of that, and the mix of people. But in writing this book, I had two reasons for setting it in the desert. One was just because I like the desert. <laughs> and I, and yes. And I, you know, a few years ago, we started going out to the Mojave, actually. And I just really fell in love with the landscape and with the silence and the peace and the quiet and the sort of the fauna and the flora. And I just, I also like the fact that it's the landscape that requires your attention. It's not something that reveals itself if you're kind of a careless onlooker. It requires you to pay attention in order to notice the life that is happening there. And the second reason is because it starts with this hit and run, I thought it would be much more interesting to set it in a small town 
where the people who lost this man, the, his family members, might at some point come across the perpetrator of this crime. I guess we have to talk about Donald Trump and <laughs> the politics of immigration. Of course, he's made a big point about not wanting refugees from those whole countries. He prefers blonde and blue-eyed immigrants from Norway, he said. In your book, that issue, the politics of immigration, is often in the background and certainly in our minds as readers. Yeah. I, I was wondering how long it was going to take us to <laughs> before we got to Trump. You know, I have a theory that no conversation between any people in this country can last for long without Donald Trump coming well, we, up. <laughs> we went four minutes. Yes. that's the... So it is a question that has come up as I've been promoting this book. But I started working on this book in 2014, long before Trump announced, and frankly, but long before I even knew of his prominence. I mean, I honestly knew nothing about the man other than he was a real estate billionaire and that he had a TV show that I'd never watched. So I didn't really know anything about him. And I was working on this story about this immigrant. I've had a long-standing interest in the subject, also because I'm an immigrant myself, and I wanted to write a story about that sort of centers on this immigrant. The book basically explores immigration from multiple different perspectives. There's the couple who came here in 1981, but there's also one daughter who was brought here as a toddler and then one daughter who was born here. And it basically goes into their different experiences of immigration. One, even though she's born here, she still has the effects of that immigration are still felt upon her. And then there's another character who's an undocumented immigrant. So that's a completely different situation for him and, and sort of the choices that he faces. Let's talk about the cop a little bit. This is not just an immigrant novel. It's also a detective story, mm -hmm. a mystery. Mm -hmm. And mysteries are a well-established genre <laughs> with their own you know, requirements and traditions. It's kind of a bold thing yeah. to step <laughs> across the line yes. into that territory. How hard was it for you to write about the cops and the detectives? Did you study Michael Connolly's <laughs> books? Uh, did you do, I don't know, ride-alongs with cops in the desert? We have a saying in Morocco that goes something like this. He who has a tongue will never be lost, which the <laughs> idea being that as long as you ask questions, you will get answers. So I knew, you know, in working on this story, once I wanted to include an element of mystery that I had to basically do my homework. Fortunately, I'd, I'd grown up when I was young, like when I was in my teens, that's all I read was mysteries. So I actually was pretty well read from that, but I hadn't picked up a mystery in quite some time. So I wrote my friend Todd Goldberg, who's a crime writer, and I said, Todd, help me out, you know, give me a nice long reading list of what do you admire, what's going on. And so he gave me this long list and I went home and I read and read and read all these crime writers. And then I also did my own research. So as you mentioned, I went on a ride along with a sheriff's deputy from the San Bernardino <laughs> County Sheriff's what, what, Department. Tell us about the ride along. <laughs> what was that like? It was a long, it was 12 hours oh. and it was in the heat. And his name was Officer Campos. He was very nice. And we had all kinds of encounters during the day. And of course, I had to remain in my seat and obey all of his directives, but I got to see a lot. I got to see, you know, like arrests and things like that that he had to do that day. But what I came away with, honestly, was how much law enforcement is being used 
basically as like social work. Like, for example, one time we stopped because the neighbors had called the police because they were worried about this woman who they thought was feeling suicidal because she had lost her daughter. And so they he had to come and basically pick her up and potentially take her for a psychiatric hold. And mm -hmm. so it was like this whole, and you know, that's obviously something that I would imagine a social worker would be involved in, but instead it was the cops being called. I also researched the logistics of a hit and run because I was very naive when I started working on this book. I thought, you know, this guy is gonna die in a hit and run. The car comes out hits him, he dies, right? It shouldn't be complicated, but of course it's complicated because what kind of a car, what kind of a collision would result in a fatality, uh, what clues might be left, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of things, all kinds of things have to be sorted out. And um, I got really lucky because I was, a friend of mine connected me with someone who's a scientist and who basically serves as an expert witness on these sort of hit and run trials. So I basically did a lot of homework is what I'm trying to say in order to write the the mystery. I, I want to ask about your uh, column for The Nation. Yes. You started writing it three years ago. That was before the election when we all thought Hillary would win and so you would be, you know, a Muslim immigrant columnist at America's Oldest Weekly with a Democratic first woman president of America. Uh, and then after November 2016, you had a big new task. You were the immigrant Muslim <laughs> columnist while Trump was the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant president. I I doubt that was the job you thought you were going to take on. Well, I mean, I, I certainly, like many other people, thought that Clinton would win. But having said that, I do think that it's not just simply a question of anti-immigrant, but just like immigrant because I don't necessarily think that um, Hillary Clinton's approach was a progressive approach on immigration. So if you look, for example, at what made Trump stand out from among his his fellow Republican hopefuls, it was the immigration ban on Muslims, but it was also building the wall, right? So, but the wall didn't the wall was there. It w wasn't something that started with Trump. It started with Clinton. I mean, Clinton mm -hmm. started building the first wall. It was in San Diego and Tijuana. It was 13 miles of fencing. And the George W. Bush administration expanded that to another 700 miles. And then those those fences and walls were built during the Bush administration and the Obama administration. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a sense of continuity between both Democratic and Republican administrations on immigration. And while his Trump's rhetoric is just hateful and 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 repugnant, we have to recognize that continuity. And when we talk about immigration, it's not a question of like, Trump is bad and Clinton is good, but more of like how this immigration policy that has been going on for more than 25 years, how has it helped the country? Has it helped the country? Has it hurt the country? And what exactly are its effects on people? You and I live on the west side of Los Angeles. You live in Santa Monica. <laughs> this is the most you know liberal, democratic, anti-Trump place in America, pretty much. There's only one precinct in all of L.A. County where Trump won. It was in Beverly Hills. But I wonder, you are an immigrant from Morocco. You're an American citizen. You're a Muslim. Do you worry about your safety? Well, I 
feel duty-bound to remind listeners that Santa Monica, however liberal it may be, produced Stephen Miller, who went to the high school some years ago (laughs) that my child now attends. So, you know, I think, again, this idea that it's everything, like that it's either or, like we really do have to question that. And just yesterday, the Washington Post uh, revealed that Stephen Miller had been counseling the president to, you know, basically stage these highly public, highly visible mass arrests of immigrants and their families and their kids in their homes. And the only reason they haven't done it, because they've been working on it for a year, the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because Kirsten Nielsen said, well, I don't have enough the logistics of it. I don't have enough beds and I don't know what to do with the paperwork because some of them have U.S. citizens. What do I do? And so it was because of that that she was forced out. And as far as like living in Santa Monica, this goes back to what I'm saying. You know, it's yes, I feel safe on a day-to-day basis in my community, but I never let myself feel too safe because I know, based on the example of Stephen Miller, that there is this racist next door, that there is this white nationalist who could be living next door. And I mean, just yesterday when I was on Twitter and I linked to this Washington Post story, all factual, you know, I wasn't even editorializing or saying what I thought. I just said what the headline was basically saying. And some rando on Twitter says, do you have your green card (laughs) to me? I mean, and this is something that happens all the time, like go back to your country and things like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I never allow myself to kind of forget about that, of that virulently anti-immigration strain that is part and parcel of American history. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's (laughs) news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You just got back from a book festival in Minneapolis. I did. And Minnesota has the highest proportion of immigrants and refugees of any state. I looked up where they're from. Number one source of immigrants to Minnesota is Mexicans. Second, people from India. Third, Somalis like Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. Fourth, Hmong from Laos. And lots of them, of course, are refugees. What was your book event in Minneapolis like? Did any of this come up there? Oh, how interesting that you asked me that question because while I was there, I had to do an interview and the person who interviewed me is Moroccan. And the first thing she said to me, because it was her first time in Minnesota, she said, I don't understand. Like, this is supposed to be a melting pot. People are supposed to be mixed, but they don't mix. Like, everybody's in their own little, you know, area. But the event was fabulous. It was very well attended. And the conversation was really great. So it was a conversation with Tommy Orange, who did a book called There, There. And it was moderated by Joseph Farag. Last question. The idea of the immigrant writer, you know, it's such a generic term. On the other hand, the idea of the immigrant is so central to our politics and our culture today. Do you want to be called an immigrant writer? I want to be called a good writer. (laughs) That's what I want to be called. And if you want to add anything else beyond that, as long as you put good in there, (laughs) then that's what matters to me. Leila Lalami, her wonderful new novel is The Other Americans. Leila, thanks so much for talking to us Thank you very much for having me.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.